You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the most basic levels of your character that we can cling to. Um, We thank you for your goodness. We thank you um, for your love. We thank you for continuing to teach us more about you um, and the fact that that's a bottomless pit that we will never be able to get all of the knowledge of how good you are. Um, I pray that you are just in this time, that you are in this space, um, that you continue to teach us, you continue to mold us. Um, I pray this all in your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow, thanks. Uh, Hey, happy Wednesday. I had to think about that for just a moment. Um, I know that we have some visitors today. If you are a visitor to Asbury University, welcome. You're always welcome here. Thank you so much for being here. The weather today feels a little more like winter than what it has in the last week, and it will probably snow in April, uh, knowing uh, the the variability, but um, I'm happy we're in here together. And what I'm sharing about today just relates to some things that I've actually said before, and during our outpouring services, I briefly shared, but I wanted to, to do that in a more formal setting here today and draw out my thoughts a little bit so that we can think about those things faithfully together. I want to open with a, a humorous story. I used to be in a faculty network with the American Enterprise Institute there in Washington, D.C., and at that time, their president was a guy named Arthur Brooks. And right now, he teaches at Harvard, but he was a president. He told this really funny story. He was a dropout in college. He just dropped out of college, and he went to Spain to be in the orchestra. So he said, I had this very bohemian lifestyle, left the country, went to play in the orchestra in Spain, but then came back to the United States, and as one does after they do something like that, he studied economics. Uh, In fact, he went on to get a Ph.D. in economics. He began teaching at Syracuse. And the more he studied economics, he said, that really formed my worldview. And he said, I I really developed a conservative political worldview at that time as I thought about markets and uh, the role of government and how do we achieve human flourishing and, and these kinds of things. Well, this was interesting because his parents were two progressive liberal professors Uh, that lived, I think, in Seattle. So he told the story of being home once, and he was with his mother, and she was working on some some dinner, and she was at the sink, and he said she was just oddly quiet. And he said, I was talking, but she really wasn't saying much. And finally, he said, Mom, is something wrong? Is everything okay? And he said at the sink, not looking at him, she (sighs) sighed. And she said, I've been talking to your father. Well, I'm just going to ask you, Arthur, have you been voting for Republicans? <laughs> Not, have you been doing drugs and, you know, the, like, have you been voting for Republicans? And he said it was this really hard moment. And his point was with this, if that's difficult in my own family, uh, how much more difficult, if, if we have that kind of division in a loving family, How greater, how much more multiplied is the division in our larger society? America's democratic project has 
always managed to harbor competing interests between groups and peoples. Uh, but today's, today's moment feels a little bit different, and you probably experienced that. In 2021, there was a poll that talked about opposing political groups. And it's not just that they disagreed with the other group. These were majority percentages. They viewed the other group as a threat to America. In a poll last June, a third of Americans listed political division as one of the top challenges facing the country. And again, they didn't say, I disagree with these people. They, they said, I hate them. Uh, it was more about hatred uh, than simply political disagreement. I remember reading a book in 2012 written by some authors at the Brookings Institute, and they said something happened in the early 2000s that, that has never happened in American history. Some legislators wrote a bill, and then they turned around and voted against the very bill that they authored. Why did they do that? Because someone on the other team liked it. And so they had to vote down the very thing they wrote because someone else that they didn't like endorsed it. A guy named David Moore says, we are living in a time of fracture. But here's the thing. To be clear, disunity has really always been a, a part of American politics. And the, the legal scholar John Anazu has pointed this out. He said, we're not actually seeking perfect unity or perfect union in the United States. That was never really the goal of the framers. They kind of baked in some disagreement and a sense of disunity into the very political institutions and structures that would come to found our nation. Rather, he says, we need to seek a more modest unity in America. We just need to identify those overlapping points of commonality. So here, here's why I shared, I'm not talking about politics today. I share this because that's America. What about Christianity? In other words, in America, unity is a kind of abstract idea or, or aspiration. It's something that we hope for, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. In Christianity, it's an expectation. Some scholars would even use the word obligation. Joni Erickson Tata has this great quote. She said, believers are never told to become one. We already are one, and we're expected to act like it. We're expected to behave like it. And this is very clear in Scripture. And just, just a few verses, but there are so many. In Acts, early believers were described as having one heart and mind. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says believers should be perfectly united in their mind and in their thought. In that famous passage in Galatians, Paul says that all Christians are one in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 4, he describes Christians working towards unity in the faith. In Romans 6-5, Paul makes a rather provocative comment that we can be united in a death like Christ, united in our death to self, united in our death to sin. But I want to just take a brief moment and focus on John 17, probably the, the most interesting passage of Scripture when we think about Christian unity. And you'll know in John 17, this is a prayer from Jesus Christ. And He prays, Lord, I pray that they are one, just like You and I are one, Father. I pray that they are one, just like we are one. And He doesn't pray that once. He prays that five times times. And for years, I have felt a burden 
with respect to increasing fragmentation in Christianity. And I'll say that Asbury is not immune to this either. And let me just give one example of what I'm describing, and that, that can be seen in the word evangelical. So just a, a bit of history. In the 1950s, the Christianity Today was formed, I think it was 1956, and this was a part of Billy Graham and his ministry. And one of the things with, with CT was, how do you define your target market? Who, who's going to read this magazine? And they said, well, the people that will read the magazine are the kind of people that, you know, like Billy Graham. And then George Marsden went on then to uh, kind of tongue-in-cheek define an evangelical is the kind of person that likes Billy Graham. That was an evangelical. And I've looked at some recent articles dating back even just a few years that kind of speak to uh, how this term has been cleaved and, and carved up and divided to account for all the different categories and divisions and factions within the realm of evangelicalism and Christianity. And I, I won't exhaust all of those articles, but they use words like Jacksonian evangelicals or Tocquevillian evangelicals, elite evangelicals. You might be a neo-fundamentalist evangelical or a mainstream or neo-evangelical, post-evangelical, ex-evangelical. The historian Jay Green talks about a two-by-two -two grid as we think about Christians in the public domain, civilizational minimalists, emancipatory minimalists, or civilizational maximalist or emancipatory maximalist. You might be a fundamentalist, but even if you're a fundamentalist, there are three different categorizations of that. Are you a neo-fundamentalist, a denominational fundamentalist? Are you a separatist fundamentalist? And I could go on, but here's the important point I want you to take away. You might say these titles reflect different categorizations of the faith, different ways of, of expressing or experiencing our faith. And I, I think that's true. But they also reflect a kind of disunity. They reflect a fractured faith. They reflect some division that we see within Christianity. So here's, here's my question that I've been asking myself and I raise with you. How do we achieve unity as Christians? And I'm not talking about just unity in general. I'm talking about John 17 unity. I'm talking about what Jesus prayed for five times in that famous chapter. Well, one way to think about unity is to respect one another's differences, uh, to have neutrality towards competing conceptions of the good, to be tolerant, uh, to have kindness and respect towards one another. We might call these liberal democratic values. And I think being kind and being nice is absolutely fundamental to being a Christian. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Be kind. I've joked before, being kind as a Christian is like saying, hey, this car comes with air conditioning or a steering wheel. Like, of course it does. Of course it does. Of course we're going to be nice. Of course we're going to be respectful as Christians. But I, I just humbly submit to you, I don't think that is enough to bring about the kind of unity Jesus prays for in John 17. I've read some literature over the last few years on unity that comes from service 
And there's actually some, some really good social science research behind this. In fact, in the 1950s, there was a social psychologist who did a study, and it was one of those kind of accidental studies, but found when groups that were very different and even hostile towards each other had to work together, had to solve a problem together, had to serve together, it minimalized, it minimized out-group hostility. And it allowed them to see each other differently. When they served, they unified. And there's a Christian way of thinking about this too. Service is so part and parcel of Christianity. And there's this wonderful quote, we have it here, written on our campus. E. Stanley Jones, have you seen that? Here we enter a fellowship, he says. Sometimes we will agree to differ. Always we will resolve to love and unite to serve. Great quote. I love that quote. But I will humbly say I'm not convinced that even serving together will bring about the kind of unity Jesus prays for in John 17. Then you might talk about doctrine. Now, hear me carefully. <laughs> I want to be very clear here. Doctrine is really important. Doctrine is so important. Asbury has doctrinal commitments, and what I mean by that is those aren't things we reason to, they are things we reason from. Uh, these are doctrinal commitments. In fact, to work at Asbury, you have to subscribe, you have to uh, be aligned with these doctrinal commitments. So, doctrine is very important. But even uniform or shared doctrine is not enough, I humbly say, to achieve the unity that Jesus is praying for in John 17. I think this is because doctrine can be a matter of those faculties above your neck, what you believe with your mind, what you utter with your mouth. And a good example of this is Acts 8. Remember Simon the sorcerer? What does it say about Simon the sorcerer in Acts 8? He believed. He was a believer. He was baptized. It said that he stayed constantly with Philip. He followed Philip around. We can imagine when Peter and John showed up in that chapter, he probably followed them around too. But do you remember how that section ends where Peter rebukes him? May your money perish with you. Why? Because your heart was not right before the Lord. You can share the same beliefs, but if your heart is not yielded, if your heart is not desirous of God, if God and others are not more important than you are, it doesn't matter what you believe, or what you believe, I would say, is far less important. How do we achieve John 17 unity, the unity that Christ prayed for? The answer I would submit to you and I firmly believe, lies in our death to self and our life in Christ. I think it's the heart. I think it's a heart that's right before God. I think it's total surrender. I think a, a heart that is broken and contrite. I love, we, we talk a lot about Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6.22, the NRSV says, now that you and I, now that we have been set free from sin and become 
slaves to God. The benefit we reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. Where Jesus has authority over everything, the cruciform life. I'm just going to keep repeating what Tish Harrison Warren said here a year ago, uh, that the doorway to the kingdom is cruciform in shape. I've called it the self-emptying pursuit of a God-filled life. And I believe this, I believe this is what leads to the John 17 unity that Christ was praying for. Um, I've listened to a lot of podcasts, not everyone. I've been rather selective of what's been happening on our campus over the last month. And it's interesting to hear different groups narrate that. And there's one podcast that I found very intriguing. It interviewed some of our students. They did awesome. And it was intriguing because they sent a journalist who is not, not a believer. In fact, this journalist said, my, my mother is a strident atheist. My father is a secular uh, Jewish figure. He's had nothing to do with religion. And she said, in fact, I don't, I don't even know anyone that believes in God. So it was interesting for this person to come and experience what was happening here and then share about that. And she had this quote toward the end, uh, regardless of what you believe, she said, you cannot deny that there are young people out there who earnestly believe in God. And now I think you can say these students have kicked off a movement of sorts. That gave me goosebumps. And now these students have kicked off a movement. Asbury, look at where we've been. Look at, um, look at the political polarization that we've experienced. Look at the, the social unrest. Look at the racial injustice. Look at the global wars. Look at the economic uncertainty. Look at the pandemic that we had to deal with. You could look at the church. I love the church. I'll always be involved in the church. The church does so many great things. But look at how the church has been marketed and commodified. Look at the moral failures. Look at the discontinuity between what people see within the church and what they see outside of the church, what they see preached and how they see it lived out. Look at the decreasing levels of institutional confidence. Look at the anxiety and the depression and the suicidal ideation that we see within our culture. And look how it's concentrated among younger generations. And look at the massive increase in the deaths of despair that have occurred in the 21st century. And look at how this is exacerbated by phones and social media, which create a hyper-awareness of all this unsettling phenomena. And look at how it reinforces ideological echo chambers. Look at all this. Consider all of this. And hear these words of Jesus fresh. Hear these words of Jesus new. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who have an appetite 
to have a right relationship with God. Blessed are those who have an appetite, who have a right relationship with others. Those are the ones who are satisfied when they leave the dinner table. Those are the ones who will have those hungers met. Hear those words from Christ. Hear that promise from Christ fresh. And as you were hungering and thirsting after righteousness in these recent weeks, so many testify to freedom and healing and reconciliation and confession and humility and life-altering commitments. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we meet Jesus. And you just had the world watching you. And more accurately, you had the world watching you watch Christ, coming to Jesus, committing to Jesus, confessing to Jesus, unselfing to Jesus, finding freedom in Jesus, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And to hear someone say, to hear someone who's not even from a faith background say, these students have kicked off a movement. Wow. And can I, can I name the essential element of this movement? It's unity, and it's unity in Christ. God wants unity, Christian unity. Jesus wants unity. He prayed for it, that they may be one, He said, that they may be in us, Jesus and God, that the world may believe that You have sent me, Jesus prays. And I think we get Christian unity We get this John 17 unity because we seek Him with all of our heart, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Let me end in in one of his most famous sermons, if not the most famous sermon. John Wesley is quoting 2 Kings 10.15, and a modern translation of that is, if your heart is the same as my heart, take my hand. If your heart is the same as my heart, if your heart is right, if my heart is right, if our hearts are right, let's unify. Let's come together. And what does that mean? Wesley, to summarize that, he says, do you embrace Jesus as divine? Do you embrace Him as Lord? Do you embrace Him as Savior of all? Do you want Him more than anything else? And are you willing to sacrifice everything for Him? Are you thoroughly committed to a God who's all-powerful, all-wise, all-good, and filled with justice, mercy, and truth? Are you a person who loves God and loves your neighbor and is passionately surrendered to God's will and glory? And let me say, this is not, it's not for everyone. Not everyone's going to say yes to this. But everyone, everyone is invited because Jesus' invitation is radical. It's ra- he invites everyone, and Jesus' demands are radical. He calls for everything. He invites everyone. He calls for everything. If that is your heart, this cruciform life, what we've seen amazingly over this last month, what is spreading contagiously right now, 
Let's lock arms. Let's undertake that journey together. Let's be one. Because if you believe that and you want that, we will end up going in the same direction because it all gets absorbed and transformed into a sold-out discipleship journey. You heard it from Dr. Vaughn, discipleship journey with Jesus Christ. And Asbury, let me, let me say this, and I believe this with all of my heart. As hard as that cruciform way is, as demanding and sacrificial as that cruciform way is, it's our best life. It's the life that you and I were designed for. It's the full abundant life that Jesus talks about in John 10.10. It is taking hold of the life that really is life that Paul talks about. So I just say, thank you, Lord, for this movement. Thank you, Lord. I say, thank you, students, for this movement. Thank you for your sensitive hearts. Thank you for what you've displayed. I said to our community yesterday, Man, it makes me so emotional. When the world is looking at Asbury, I am so proud of what they've seen. Thank you, students. And when the world sees us, can they see a sold-out commitment to Christ? Can they see that Christ has all of us? Can they see real life, abundant life, human flourishing, Can they see a generation that says, we will not be defined by anxiety and depression and suicidal ideation and addiction? And can they see unity? John 17, unity. Let's pray together. Father, we pray again. We thank You for this movement. We thank You for Your hand at work. We thank You, Lord, for things that You do that we could never, ever manufacture on our our own. And Lord, I thank You for these students, and I thank You for their hunger, and I thank You for their transparency and their vulnerability, and I thank You for how they've stepped out. I thank You for how they've led. So Lord, as things burn here and Your Spirit dwells here, and as things burn out into our state and into our country and into our world. Lord, I pray that Jesus' prayer would be fulfilled. Empower us, God. Help us to say, yes, you have all of us, 100%. Yes to Jesus. Yes to one another. And Lord, may we flourish. And Father, please be here. Because if you are not here, we're just doing stuff. Please be here. I thank you, Lord, for this community. What a privilege it is to be in it. And I pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.